0: Love, talk radio.
1: good evening it's Adriel Hampton host of government 2.0 radio and I am uh, uh, here tonight to speak with uh, Stephen Buckley and Brian Drake uh, Stephen is a career fed and an uh, advocate of open government and reinventing government back in the 90s he uh, managed a listserv of thousand uh, uh, government folks who are interested in reinventing government, and uh, as we go into uh, another phase that we're calling Government 2.0, it's great to get the perspective of people who've been working on these issues for some time. Uh, Brian Drake is a collaboration consultant, and excited to talk to him tonight, and we're going to be discussing uh, some of the things that, that work and don't work in government and collaboration. And uh so very happy to have uh, those two uh, gentlemen joining us tonight. And um, one of the things I wanted to, uh, to also mention uh, this week that I think are very interesting, uh, Twitter released uh, lists this week, uh, which is a way of grouping uh, folks that you follow or don't follow on Twitter uh, by uh, category. And I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Government 2.0 lists going around uh, made up by different folks and it's a a quick way to uh, see who's uh, on Twitter in different spaces. Uh, Also this week was the uh, beta launch of uh, govlove.org, that's G-O-V-L-U-V.org, and that is a site uh, by uh, Jim Gilliam and the Open Forum Foundation that allows uh, representatives and constituents to uh, actually what it does is filters their conversations into uh, one conversation stream, and I think that that's a pretty uh, neat tool for uh, increasing connection between uh, reps and citizens in social media. So we've got that as well. And I think I've uh, just got one of the uh, my co-hosts just joining us. Uh, is that right? Do you have a Steve on the line?
2: You do have a Steve on the line. How's it going, Adrian?
1: It's going good. Just Steve Lunsford. I can Gather and yeah. uh Steve once before we uh, go to our guests, did you have any uh any news you wanted to talk about this week?
2: Yeah, you touched Just on a suspension. couple. I think lists lists are very interesting in terms of um you know what they're gonna what they're gonna mean and, and how useful they're gonna be. They're kind of one dimensional at this point because it's kind of follow all or nothing, uh, as you go out there. I've been looking at how do I start to incorporate uh those into into something like GovTwit, right, which has uh you know, over 2,500 IDs right now, and certainly you don't want to have, uh, you know, hundreds of, uh, be able to follow hundreds uh, necessarily. Most folks wouldn't necessarily. They they want to be a little more selective. So looking to see what that kind of means. Um, yeah, there are a couple of things that I thought were interesting. This week uh, there was a story that Federal News Radio ran about TSA's Idea Factory, uh, which was an internal collaboration effort uh, that they put together, kind of um, uh, patterned off of what Dell had done, uh, that they're kind of expanding that uh, throughout DHS, not just TSA. So it would be interesting to see how the rest of the organization kind of takes to that tool and, and looking at, uh, uh, you know, crowdsourcing new ideas for, for how the department runs and how they can uh, improve processes and things like that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, you touched on on the, the soft launch of GovLove, which is, uh, again, a pretty cool site to look at, uh, how to interact with your uh, you know, anywhere from your, your your federal representatives down to your local councilman. So uh, kind of a cool thing. And, and we're looking at uh, myself and uh, uh, the folks at Tweet Congress and GovLove and, and GovLoop are looking at doing kind of a, a happy hour to, to celebrate the one-year anniversary of uh, Tweet Congress and GovTwit and the launch of GovLove here within the next couple of weeks. So we'll hopefully have uh, some information on that within uh, before this week is out. Um, it's a, it's, it, I don't know if Rester is going to join us, but uh, there was a, a, a government leadership conference that ACT-IAC put on this week down at uh, Williamsburg, which sounded pretty cool from the, the trail that I was following. It seems that there were a ton of folks down there. Uh, Mary Davey over at the GSA and the Better, uh, Better Buy project in terms of using some of these tools for federal acquisition, held a press conference and, and talked about that, uh, that site, which had, had gone up a couple weeks ago. Um so i I'd love to hear more information and i forget what the hash is off, off the link. I don't know if you had if you have that angel but uh I thought that was kind of a cool uh, you know, followed some of the tweets out of it It's actually started uh last sunday so um
1: uh, that that conference you know i think i I did have the hash and and now uh, it's flipping uh, my mind uh, so maybe we can can yeah. come back to that, or or when we pick it up, you can tweet it out of uh,
0: GovTwit.
2: Yeah, the, the the last thing I think I would mention is there's uh, going to be a conference this week um, called Strengthening Trust in Government, uh, talking about open dialogues and building collaboration that's being put on by uh, the public manager, a publication called The Public Manager, and the American Society for uh, Public Administration. Um, and I'm probably going to visit at least one day down there, but it sounds like a pretty cool, uh, uh, pretty cool event again. Um, they've got a, a, a group set up within GovLoop uh, as well as LinkedIn to kind of share some information that's going to be coming out of that and that's that, that uh, uh, you can go to thepublicmanager.org and find more information about that but again that's strengthening trust in government
0: okay
1: great we'll go ahead and introduce our guests I don't know um, Brian are you on the line with us I have a... I'm here okay great uh, well Brian um, I've I, introduce Stephen a bit and we'll get uh, back to him as well. But Brian, why don't you introduce yourself um, for a guest and then Stephen and um, as well.
3: Okay. Uh, my name is Brian Drake. I'm a manager with Deloitte Consulting. Um, I serve in the public sector, so uh, my primary focus is uh, collaboration consulting for uh, the federal uh, service. Uh, I do a little uh, commercial work and a little nonprofit work as of late. Um, And I guess uh, I got into this um, business through a federal client who was interested in um, applying Web 2.0 techniques to how they deliver higher quality services to their customer base, and um, I've been doing it for about three years now. Time really has flown for me. Uh, But that's kind of the long and short of it. I've I've listened to this podcast for a long, long time, uh, and I, I really like what you guys are doing, so... A long-time listener, first-time caller, I guess.
1: First-time <laughs> caller. Well, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for the for the for the nice words there. Uh, well, three years makes you uh, somewhat of an old hat in the Web 2.0 world, uh, at least you know actually working in it full time. And then uh, we've got Stephen Buckley with us, and, and Stephen uh, has, I'm sure, seen uh, waves of reform come and go. Stephen, why don't you introduce us uh, to yourself and, and give us a, a quick. And heard some of your thoughts
0: yeah um i uh I was just i feel like an old geezer you know i'm <laughs> o- i'm only fifty five but all this uh and and it's it and it's kind of like deja vu because uh in the early nineties when I discovered what a modem was, and I figured out that I didn't have to go all the way across town to the e p a headquarters to get some information you could just use your computer like wow this is great so uh, but I I worked uh, in the environmental field in in several uh, federal agencies and that kind of uh, brought me into the uh, you know how how the federal government works at various levels and um, also um, was involved because of the environmental area there's a lot of public participation in uh, decision-making so that was intriguing to me. I, I grew up in a small New England town, which is where I've retreated to now, where they still have the real town hall. Well, no, I misspoke. Town meeting. It's called yeah. town meeting. So, uh,
1: you guys and, and I want to oh, mention yeah. I, I uh, admire you for recently running for local office and trying to put these ideas of, of collaboration <laughs> and technology and citizen engagement, government engagement uh, at the fore of your campaign. I, uh, having done something similar myself, I think it's important.
0: Yeah, well, I think it, the easiest way to educate the people who I in, in the town, my hometown, is is actually to go and effect change at the top because they were like one of the last places to have a website. So, you know, if it's one of those, mind, the typical mindset of where you know, let everybody else do it first and then when everybody else gets a website or whatever, you know, then they go, well, I guess it must be you know, the late adopters.
3: Okay.
1: Well, and and um Brian, you probably work with with some of the folks. I it seems like DC right now is 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 the hotbed of of early
3: adoption. Is is that what you see there? It it seems that way. Um the the thing that I find the most fascinating about this particular area of uh, information technology is that the government, probably for the first time since the early 60s, is actually ahead of the private sector. I mean, we, um, we of course, you know, Deloitte has kind of two sides of the house, a public sector and a, and a commercial sector. And we have uh, more people in the commercial sector coming to us asking for what are the best practices in applying this technology uh, than, than I, I've ever had someone do. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the government is just so far ahead when it comes to figuring out how to reach citizenry, how to, how to enhance its uh, enterprise 2.0 offerings uh, than the commercial sector has even thought about. And now the, the commercial sector is just running to catch up. And, and now,
1: it, I, I would probably caveat that that's probably federal, right? Do you, do you work with uh, any state or local agencies? I mean, where do you see them? And I, I, I see definitely different paces uh, between different, you know, different levels of government in the U.S. right now.
3: Yeah, have developed point. I do have some contact with state and locals on this issue, but I, I have to say that because um, you know, I guess this is just classic. There isn't a lot of investment in IT at the state and local level. So the federal government certainly is probably the furthest ahead. But even state and local governments are are probably more uh, further ahead on the curve for this sort of stuff than the commercial sector. And and I think it comes back to um, calculations of risk. For a commercial company, their calculation of of what is risky and how do we put ourselves out there is quite different than the the public sector. And, And for a very Easily understandable purposes and reasons. Uh, you know, the public sector there's an obligation to share information with the public. Uh, you you elect you elect a representative, and you expect that representative to be accountable to to what you <laughs> put them into office for. A company doesn't have that unless they have stockholders, and even then, they don't have to disclose a whole lot to the stockholder base. It's just kind of whether or not we've made a profit or not, whether or not we've met our SEC reports or not. You know, so. Um, uh, there is more of an impetus on the public sector side to, to leverage these technologies as quickly and to their fullest extent possible than the commercial sector. I think that's a piece of it. The second piece of it is that um, there's not a lot of money uh, to be made, at least people haven't identified a way to make a lot of money through the commercial sector. Um, you take a take a, um, a tool like Twitter, which is really cool and we would like to use it, but how does a company really make money off of it? I think what we could all say, it's fairly obvious that it's a good way to reach customers. It's a good way to understand the pulse of customers. But would I use Twitter to sell a product? Maybe. Would it be very effective? Uh, Maybe. There's so many dependencies on how people receive that channel and how um, that channel is broadcast back out and how that's retweeted, rebroadcast, re-understood, that I think the decision calculus for companies is quite a bit different than it is in the public sector.
1: Yeah, it it's interesting too. I was I've been reading a couple of uh the new social media books that have come out. One of them being Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk and he's talking about uh putting Twitter head to head with things like direct mail and billboards and radio. But uh you know, it might be difficult for a uh corporation to get super excited and say, hey, we've got a new direct mail, you know, uh, or a mm-hmm. alternative no, mm-hmm. direct mail here. Whereas in, in government, you can get excited and say, wow, a way to really talk with our constituents and get real-time feedback. Um, and and that was why I was interested in, in Govlo this week. Uh, I just did a, a quick blog post about identity as, as, as kind of a problem on Twitter. I mean, you might have I know a couple of the uh, California politicians who are on the Twitter-suggested user list, uh, Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom, uh, both were pretty much running for governor, and and Newsom just dropped out this week. But you have uh, more than a million followers for those guys. But how many of those are actually Californians? How many of them are actual voters? And uh, so Twitter is very, uh, you know, it's in its infancy as a way to really uh, connect folks with the representatives in the style of government we have and I, I like Gov Love in that it tries to filter out, you know, and get get down the relationship between an elected official and mm-hmm. their actual uh constituents and and I think that's gonna give it some more power, you know, especially in local government, uh, where, you know, people are going, Wait, I mean, I'm I'm responsible to people of my city of twenty thousand, there's no way, you know, Twitter matters to me. But once they've got hundred constituents on Twitter, uh, it
2: might yeah, this is, you know, Adriel, this is Steve Lunsford. I, I think it's interesting to see, uh, for, for efforts like GovLove, what will happen with the with the other end. So you've got constituents that will start to use it to message, but how many of the their elected representatives at what level have, you know, gotten on Twitter just as a push mechanism, right, as a broadcast as opposed to a dialogue. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out and if this connects them and if they kind of change what their strategy is. Um I wanted to ask Stephen a question about. Uh, so, so the, the technologies have changed obviously since you know over the past decade, to, you know, to, to fifteen years, but I think a lot of the cultural issues may not have changed in terms of um, agencies still being relatively siloed and. Uh, you know, separate missions and, and having to work with uh, within the boundaries of of constantly changing executive branches with constantly changing uh, you know uh, priorities that come with that that may or may not necessarily map to a, an, ad, an individual agency mission. But what what are the most difficult? Uh, you know, do you see the, that that some of those are starting to break down? That these new tools and new technologies can start to break some of those barriers, or are they? Are the same barriers in place now that there were 10 years ago.
0: I think uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I think there's an aspect that the 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 social aspect and when I say social I don't mean social media I mean the human nature aspect and um uh the guy who uh, coined was it Bill Eggers who wrote the book uh, Gov 2.0 mm-hmm. He uh he was he was on a podcast that I was listening to on Friday and uh anyway, he, he was he, he said that something that I was so glad to hear and that was that a lot of the uh, implementation of uh government programs or probably any program, but mostly government programs, is that the public is set up the only time they they hear about uh, government programs is when they screw up. Mm. And then it gets in the paper. And then so they get the impression, oh, you know, well, it's the only time they read about government is screwing up. You know, there are 99.9% of the things that go on that uh, don't make the paper and everything worked out fine and no planes crashed today. You know, things like that don't get in the paper. So... It's very much a, um, um, you know, we, we need to find somebody who's screwed up type of thing. And so when I was in federal government, somebody told me that, uh, or it was common knowledge, probably still is, it says your main job in the government is to make sure your boss's name does not appear in the Washington Post. <laughs> so, you know, do whatever you're going to do you know, successful career, Ah, 30 years, and I never, my boss's name never got in the Washington Post. Consider yourself a success. (laughs) You can just show up at work, take a paycheck, you know, pass paper around, as long as your boss doesn't get in the Washington Post, because that means it it won't be for an award. It'll be because his office screwed up, and, you know, and you don't want to be the one that, you know gets the blowback on that so keep your head low and so forth and so on so the whole thing is um the uh was it chris dorbeck calls it the turtle syndrome you know anything comes along and all the turtles pull their heads in you just keep your head low and so it really comes back to the fact that the public is only engagement only exposure to dealing with government isn't um you know Involved in the decision-making process, and somebody trying to engage them as a customer to find out, hey, what do you want? What do you want? You know, they they only hear about it when when it screws up. And so I think there's a certain amount in this uh, public engagement, civic engagement, that will require some them, the, the citizens, to step up and not just and not just throw up their hands and say, ah, eh, government's a screw up. So that's really a core. Problem is retraining so to speak the uh, the citizenry to be part of the process and in so doing be less of a uh, drive by critic so the technology helps a little bit, but you could have all the all the technology there's no killer app out there that's going to make people stop bitching about the government because that's all they read about in the paper even what do you think about
1: i I'm a former uh, city hall reporter and and local journalist and you know, like the police department will always be saying, well, why don't you ever write about the good things we do? And, you know, like I know in San Francisco they a lot of the stations have their weekly newsletter that tells about, uh, you know, the arrests that have been made and gives tips and that kind of thing. Do you think that having a more robust media channel uh, with some of these tools, you know, if, if an agency uh, uses social media to kind of crank out some of the the, the mission-focused work they're doing, uh, you know and sometimes the papers pick it up mostly they ignore the the good news because it's not exciting enough but do you think that that, uh, that kind of use of
0: technology will uh, push push the culture change? Well the technology the, the more you involve people and there's not going to be like I said there's not going to be any killer app I mean you know back in the early 90's we were thinking oh man if only everybody got on the internet man oh then we'll all be involved in government and people will see the great work we're doing and so forth. So there's, it, it helps. And it's, it certainly we're further along than we were back then. But to, to, the, the, the key thing is to draw people in to a, a process. So if somebody was building a bridge in your town, like they're doing in my town and they're asking people to get in, involved and people go to a meeting, then, yeah, maybe there were only 30 people at that meeting, but it's better than nobody at a meeting Saying, you know, what kind of bridge do you want? Uh, some people want to put in the old wooden bridge because we live in a quaint New England town, and they don't want to see the old bridge go. But it's only going to last 30 years, and the feds have to d- design it to the 75 year. So they're looking at concrete. And but as you as you bring in more people, bit by bit, and certainly email helped get out the word for people to go to that meeting. But when it comes right down to it, it's uh, that it, as people get more and more involved in these decisions. That affect their lives bit by bit. Then it's it's kind of like building a reputation for any quality company. You know, you can't. There's no one commercial that's making it's. It's you build up a reputation,
2: unless uh, you're Apple.
0: Right? Well, they built yeah. Well, they built up a reputation, and you know, Honda, Toyota. You know, it's it's hard work, but you know, they, you reach out you and people, uh, you build up that customer satisfaction you have to do it by reaching out to your customers and saying how many cup holders do you want and listen and, and you know stuff like that so that's that's the, it's it's going to be hard work and that's why I, I whenever I hear about killer app stuff it's like oh those young guys think there's going to be this killer app out there that's suddenly going to make everybody friends and
1: well I, I sometimes feel like a, a you know Pretty old because I was living in San Francisco, you know, the San Francisco area around the first dot com boom. And, uh, you know, when there were so many cool applications, I, one of my friends actually worked on uh, Cookies and milk.com dot com, which was actually a startup oriented around uh, delivering cookies and milk to uh whoever wanted them. And that's how, you know, wild it got pets dot com and the talking sock and all that. And then that all kind of you know, went back under the carpet, and now it's all back again. Uh, Brian, let me ask you, what do you see, uh, you know, in working as a collaboration consultant? How do you tackle the, these cultural issues of, you know, the biggest job is to keep our boss's name out of, out of the paper
3: in a bad story? It's, it's a fascinating time to be in this area because for all the reasons why, Web 2.0 or enterprise 2.0 solutions can deliver so much transparency and power to government. There's a symbiotic relationship between the press and the government. And when these technologies are being deployed on the open web, they're having a very disruptive impact to how news is delivered and where people get their news and what they would rather read, whether what they should read. You know, and this is a this is not a new thing, but now what I'm starting to see is that as the fourth estate withers and the ability to um, collaborate is stronger within the government, the question of authentic messaging is more relevant than ever. We've, we mean, I, I extend a lot of trust to the people I work with because they are who they, who they are and I have a personal relationship with them, but the citizenry does not. And they don't have the kind of insight that I may have about what's going on. And people are so, I don't know, what's the word, Um, jaded, cynical about what the government says is is true Uh, and trust is so low that in many ways, without that, Fourth Estate saying something like, no, this is true because we've researched it, you've read our other articles where we've researched things similar to this, you definitely trust us. So when you hear the government say that and we say it's also true, you should trust the entire um, the, the entire soundtrack coming out of both sides. It's, it's very interesting to me because unless the Fourth Estate finds some way to adapt um, and not just use the tools but fundamentally change the way they process, understand, investigate information that comes from the government, I I don't know how much longer we're going to have a free and open press that can really um, help us understand where our truth lies.
0: There's one thing, uh, Steve Buckley, I was just looking over some old archive stuff from the reinventing government thing, and, that was a big part of the reinventing government uh, effort. Was to uh, one an indicator, I guess, uh, was that they were they were encouraged because they were actually able to increase uh, trust in government, according to the surveys. By uh, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was some for some reason it went up by twenty percent over the course of was it six or seven years that they had done that which you know it was an upward trend and it was 20%. So it's probably gone down since then but uh you know it, it can be done but it it has to be you know, earned and um bit by bit. So uh, one
1: interesting thing I I mean there's that old saw that uh, everybody hates congress but they like their congressman. And it seems like uh, some of the interactive tools through uh, social media bring, uh, you know, representatives even closer to the citizens or officials or agencies closer to the citizens. But that's a very interesting point, Brian, about the that you're losing that third-party validator to, to say, yeah, they're not full of it. Uh, and that, that actually is a little bit scary. I mean, in, in some ways that can lead to mass fragmentation, and you can see that as someone on social media where you just have clicks of people that uh believe one thing or another about government or about something else and you know they they can find like minds uh in in the uh on the web and you get enough people together of a like mind that even if they're totally delusional uh that creates its own truth so that that's kind of a, a scary
2: element yeah but the you know, the, the opposite yeah. also also is true though right i mean so and this is Steve Luntzer. So, so, if you have content that's being pushed out that's useful and it's valuable, it's going to spread virally, and more people are going to to, to uh, interact with that content. So, whether it's the CDC's flu messaging or whatever it is uh, that that may be pushed out, if it's of value and it's useful, it's going to find a way to uh, uh, to be absorbed and, and used. And, and, just like you have uh, reviews on commercial sites like Amazon.com or whatever, you, you, those sort of things come to, come into play. And so while they may not be the validators that you had in the past of, say, a you know, the press or, or, or whatever that third party is, you now have kind of, you know, the wisdoms of the crowd to be able to guide you as to, okay, well, this, this is good content and this other stuff that, that you know, X agency puts out great content, and it's worth kind of paying attention to, and Y agency maybe needs to step their game up.
3: I think that's true, Steve. I think that in some ways the the data itself will tell us the quality of its origination, and, and actually that provides an opportunity for the citizenry to say, hey, you guys need to clean this up. It's not XML tagged. It's not available through Firefox. You know, All those things will help uh, put more light on what some agencies do, but then there are others where You know, their inherent job is not something that – it's something the government needs, but it's not something the citizenry has purview into for for very valid reasons. Um, So, for example, there's this um, this really good documentary. It's called uh, The Search for Truth, and it's about the 9-11 Commission and how the 9-11 Commission was brought together. And one of the points that it makes is that the citizenry used to be very dependent upon the press to – uh, keep the defense infrastructure in check So, you know, you know, why is it that we're going into Vietnam, for example, you know and, and how the press really got involved and changed the public debate about whether or not we should stay in, in Southeast Asia That is a very, that the, the press we have today versus the press we had then is very, very different and, and this is just Brian Drake, but I think that um, because uh, the press has more pressure to be more places because of the 24-hour news cycle, um, and has declining revenue streams. The macro effect is they can't be everywhere I need them to be to investigate in enough depth some of these issues that matter to us. And, and that was one of the points of that documentary: was the press would have liked to have spent more time um, really pushing the government and saying, Why aren't you giving access to records? Why are Why are you? not going to get in front of the commission and testify. Why won't you let Condi Rice testify independently? All these other issues. It was only when the family stu- stepped up and said, uh, asked those questions and put enough pressure from the public against their own Congress members that when, when transparency really started to come out. So it's stuff like that that um, makes me worried. So I guess with any technology that, has great power, it can be, have be, be very powerful and do good things, and often can do some pretty not-so-good things. And, and finding that balance is pretty tough.
0: Uh, this is Steve Buckley. I, I, I was When you were talking about the Vietnam analogy, and then I was reminded of the, the, the bashing, I guess, that the press got for, I don't know, being lap dogs for the uh, current uh, war, the beginning of the current war in Iraq, Where they said, um, you know, how come you didn't? How come you took everything the Bush administration said about weapons of mass destruction and didn't really, you know, delve deeper to see what kind of, uh, you know, quagmire what, what we were getting ourselves into, so forth and so on. So, but so I see that as a good example of where, for whatever reasons, the press, when it comes to the government, basically takes, is beholden to what they put out and with the you know they take a press release they give it a little they massage it they make a few phone calls and put out at least to lead up to the Iraq war that um, that's an example of where maybe the press has gotten too uh, moribund and now um, but uh, it's but le- having to do with the open government directive I was calling the White House to try to figure out well gee I'm a blogger you know I gotta I gotta blog at com, and I said with the open government directive coming out, gee, how do I uh, get access? You know, am I a real reporter? Mm-hmm. And certainly with all the idea that uh, all the federal agencies will be having to come up with open government plans, I said, well, gee, the, what's the plan for the White House? Um, you know, how are they going to, you know, what's, how, how do I get in? How can I be a trusted agent as uh, Chris Brogan calls them and, and, and be one of those people. And they don't from, they don't, I I called, talked to somebody at the OMB press office and they're like, Oh, just send us an email. We'll tell you if you can get an interview. I'm like, well, you know, that's it. (laughs) And then I read people who are, you know, then I read other blogs and I'm like, well, gee, they're able to catch up with, uh, you know, Oh, Beth Novak and all these other people. What's, what's the protocol? And I, there isn't any. It's just, you know, catch as catch can. So it's still evolving. That's so very interesting to me because, because where the where the
3: real energy lies is probably in the blogosphere. So the real power of what would not be the quote-unquote legitimate press is really where the inquiry is happening and where there's a lot of legwork. And, and I hate to belabor this documentary, but it was very good. The the one person who was able to draw together a very compelling Timeline uh, was a blogger a guy who had no expertise no journalism skills whatsoever and what he ended up doing was the the 9-11 timeline project and in that project I'm probably butchering the name probably some other official name but in that uh, project he went back to all these kind of um, obscure press releases and he started weaving together all of these um, interesting facts that the press was reporting on uh, prior to 9-11 that they couldn't piece together like um, this issue of whether or not um, the government knew that there were there were um, threats against um, uh, planes and um, after 9-11 happened you know we all heard that the, the government was saying we, we had no idea this no one could have imagined that on and on and on this guy uncovered no less than two to three years of reporting where there was this constant this constant soundtrack of, yeah, threats against airlines seems like a big deal. We, we just uh, arrested somebody who had something to do with it in 1999 and another guy in 2000 and then um, security protocols in 2001 started to get higher for air threats. So just that ability to reach back in time and bring back the mosaic to today was very, very powerful. And that didn't rely on access. That did rely it exclusively, but it did rely on somebody who had the position to ask the question intelligently. And someone had to have a way to ask public officials before it was important news. Hey, why are you, you know, why are you putting people with rocket launchers on the top of your hotel? Um, any any reason? Oh well, air threats. Oh okay, that's noted down in history. Now we need to figure out. At what point in time did you actually know, which we still don't know? So let let me ask you, one 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 Brian, on
1: the, uh, this point that we we're talking about that governments are non-competitive, right, and so they uh, are less competitive than, than private enterprise, and they have a little bit maybe more uh, freedom to, to try something and fail. Um Do you see uh, agencies wanting to work with other agencies that have similar missions or do knowledge sharing, or do you see uh, a heavy resistance to, uh, you know, maybe diluting the the power of a traditional hierarchy?
3: I think um, I I see more agencies wanting to work together. I've never seen uh, so much impetus to do it. And and there's many, many reasons why. And they have less to do with technology and more to do with, of the mission imperative to share data. But I think it has, a, uh, in addition to that, it is the increasing transparency of data, and not just from what governments release, but just from what people have access to. Um, so Twitter is doing that, the blogosphere is doing that, Wikipedia is doing that. And what, it, and what one thing I think Wikipedia has cracked the code on that I think many agencies have yet to do is that question of authenticity. Um, If if you recall, maybe a couple of months ago, um, Jimmy Wales was making a petition for the New York Times to not archive, uh, permanently archive away and off the web uh, links to uh, news articles, because most of the news articles that are in Wikipedia reference back to the New York Times, and those would all be dead links. But the reason why that was important is because that question of authenticity, again relying on the Fourth Estate, uh, would be gone if they they um, archived that off the web. So um, agencies are are dealing with that internally, like, okay, so John Smith told me that this is what this uh, lead report says, but I don't want what John Smith says, I want the report. How do I get to that? That question hasn't been asked before. And sometimes uh, other agencies need to have that access to that information, too. So. Um, being able to offer that up in a more transparent way is helping everybody in that respect. And I think, I think um, the collective common is starting to see that that's that's a good thing to do. Full stop. There are still some folks out there that that say I can't share this information for many reasons that are rooted in very practical reasons too, um, uh, laws, regulations. Um, yeah, you know, not so much investment in technical infrastructure, so it may not be possible to host as much data as they'd like to make public. Records that have been um, made in paper or microfiche that now have to be uh, electrified, you know, that, that in itself is a very expensive endeavor, and not many agencies are resourced like that. So, um, oftentimes the reasons why you won't see information surface is just because it's either too costly or there's some reason why they can't. I don't often encounter um, somebody saying, well, I just don't want to, uh, but I do. <laughs> and it's, it's disappointing, um, but that's why I have a job.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's good. Now, I, I was almost thinking, as you were describing, you know, the the cost and the difficulty, but also the value of, I mean, it's almost like having a Google Books for government official documents, and I know that uh, that, that Google, you know, one of the largest corporations out there by market cap now, is, you know, having a bear of a time uh, negotiating different laws, uh, covering different uh uh, documents that they want to scan into their uh, their archive, and also just the tremendous cost and time it takes to do that. So I can see that it's, it's a massive uh, challenge for the government to. where so it's like the you know, but replicating the Library of uh, Alexand- Alexandria to some extent.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's not a trivial thing, and I think the thing that that, that does irk me a bit is that those reasons oftentimes are not explained. So from the outside looking in, it, you just get upset, right? Well, why won't they? <laughs> I think we see this in a lot of conferences, is people just kind of throwing up their hands and saying, well, why don't all the Congress, this this gets to, get to uh, Laura, uh, Lawrence Lessig's uh, blog post a while back. I guess it was an article, actually, in, in the New Republic. But why doesn't Congress share all of their uh, schedules? You know, why, why, why not? It's the right thing to do. They're my congressmen. I should know who they're seeing and why they're seeing them, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that decision to not share a, person, a member a congress member's calendar is very deliberate. And it's deliberate because it shouldn't be disclosed. For whatever reason, that congressperson believes it just shouldn't be disclosed. So this gets back to that issue of trust as well. How, how to, to what extent do we trust our government? Do we trust our, our legislators? And um, if they make a decision to not disclose um, their calendar, why? Why is that? Just asking that question, uh, you know, maybe um, not the answer to that question may not be satisfactory because I don't want to, and I'll probably, probably answer in most cases. But it is what it is.
0: Uh, this is Steve Buckley. I, I think that uh, that Lessig was talking about the idea that well, if you put that information out, then people are just going to pounce on it and say, "Aha, meeting with the uh, National Association of Widget Makers, ah," and then connecting dots that you know may or may not be true about what it is and so forth. So it's for the average bureaucrat, you know, it's like, "Oh, let's put out all our oil and hazardous spill reports at the federal facilities we oversee." It's like, you know, it's kind of like, what do you want to lead with that type of information? Why don't we lead with the good stuff first and then get people more involved in what goes on in government? And then you you kind of inoculate yourself against the stuff that, you know, looks trashy from the beginning. So I understand what he was saying, but but it's kind of... You know, is that the best? Is that what people really want to know? Is the average citizen? Oh, if only I knew who my congressman was meeting with. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: that's top of the list. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you really get into a, a conundrum when you try to decide what is important information, what is useful information, and who's going to make that decision. And and with the decay of the press, it's even more uh, haphazard, perhaps.
3: Well, and it, and I think Larry's other point was that that just seeing that data. Lacks context. I mean, yep. I mean, I worked on the Hill for for a summer as an intern, and um, <laughs> one of the um, and I worked for uh, Congressman Lindsey Graham, and, and one of the um, things that I immediately became attuned to was the presence of lobbyists, the presence of companies in the office all the time, and the reason was is because we and Lockheed Martin happened to be uh, one of the, the larger um, companies in the in the area. Well, the reason why. They were always there was because there was a plant in the constituency. People's jobs were dependent upon the ability for Lockheed Martin to demonstrate its ability to serve the nation. And, you know, all that we want to say about, um, you know, well, you know, contractors in bed with the government, et cetera, it's been a staple of our government forever. It yeah. is, in fact, the only reason why the government runs. If we didn't have contractors, the lights, literally, in buildings would not be on. The air conditioning systems would not work. You can pay salaries all day long, but you still need to outsource some key features to keep the government up and running. So, I, I don't think our public has a degree of comfort with that yet. And I think we sell lots of newspapers by, you know, um, saying, "Oh, here's another scandal," and so forth and so. Forth. You know, that's not. Um, That's not a reflection of reality. And I think that um, if one were informed uh, more about how this is how the government operates, uh, then they can step back and say, oh, okay, it makes sense why he would have that meeting because there's a plant and there's a constituency in his district he needs to to serve uh, the needs of his constituents. I get that. And, and
1: Brian, we just ran out of time, so we're not live anymore. Um, Sorry to (laughs) cut you off in mid-sentence. I sort of gave a three-minute warning here um that is that's important looking at the context of uh you know gotcha press and the history of government and how it works and the history of civil service i just took a, a you know hr class and you look at reinventing government's been a theme for you know 100 years in the civil service right since it was created everyone's trying to to redo it um so we're not on air but the the podcast keeps recording and i wanted to give folks uh Quick way to get uh, in touch with you or to follow you in the future. I know, Stephen, you're on Twitter as Transpartisan. Uh, Brian, you're there as The Drake. Uh, and, uh, Stephen, you mentioned your blog. It's uh, Transparency
0: US? Uh, it's US Transparency. Oh, Dot Transparency.com? Dot com. Mm-hmm. Right. I also where, where
1: have. Brian, where are you
3: blogging? Uh, I, I blog at the, the Green Dotted blog. Line green
1: dotted line okay great well thank you so much guys and I'm, I'm sorry yeah we could have talked for another 15 minutes very easily i appreciate you coming on tonight oh much much okay. my pleasure and i, and I wish
0: i talked less are there <laughs> is it does it just for my curiosity um adriel does it the podcast how long does the podcast go for is it like an hour or
1: uh, it's a 45 minute show uh yeah. and it'll actually keep running uh it'll keep recording for quite a long time as long as we keep talking but it it uh the live portion was 45 minutes
0: okay how much of your listenership uh actually listens live do you think
1: most of our listenership is is uh downloads it so we're talking now to most of the people who listen to the oh. show <laughs> yeah. oh,
0: okay so if you have any
1: any final thoughts uh feel free to to share them
0: the, um, uh, we, 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 uh, we're still waiting, I guess, uh, we didn't talk that much about the open government directive. I know uh, I'm, I'm working with, uh, uh, young, a gentleman named, uh, Lucas Chiaffi on a unconference slash bar camp on the open government directive. But now that October is over and it still hasn't come out as far as I know that, uh, the open government directive is kind of pushing our planning for that, uh, Further into the future, and so that's kind of up in the air uh, now that we're heading towards the uh, Thanksgiving and other holidays, and so forth and so on. So, um, we were just trying to provide a, a place for people to react to uh, the Open Government Directive because there never was a, uh, a draft or anything, you know, that anybody could actually, you know, chew on. But for all those uh, bureaucrats who would be the practitioners I'm I'm sure they're they're the ones who who haven't been speaking up or you know haven't been on the stage at all these uh open government conferences and so forth so I'm I'm very curious to hear what they think about that and that's the reason we were going to have it but like I said it's kind of a big question mark at this point um
1: and, and I I'm sure you will still have that it'll just be uh, maybe early next year or Uh, following up the holidays. Brian, do you, in your practice, see uh, people, you know, who are apprehensive or, or, you know, getting ready to deal with this open government directive, right?
3: Um, No, I don't think anyone's kind of uh, been hit with it yet. I don't think – I think it's kind of a wait-and-see kind of thing. Um, uh, So, no, I'm not seeing anybody make noise about it, but I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to care about it as soon as something's published. (laughs) But along that, those, um, those long, uh, along those same lines, uh, I am, in my copious amount of free time, uh, planning a conference on um, – well, the, the purpose of the conference is really to get the people uh, that we have not ever heard from who have uh, opinions or perspectives on the transparency movement, Web 2.0, Government 2.0, um, someone uh, sent me a tweet that said, "You're looking to to convert agnostics. That's a challenge, and that's that's um, that's kind of what we're going after. We're trying to find the folks that that have opinions that have yet to voice them about how some of the technology, some of the techniques, uh, some of the thoughts can help them solve their problems or not help them at all. And who are those people, and why aren't why aren't they helpful for them?" Um, so, it's been popularly called the, the Gov2o hashtag sale conference, but we, we're trying to recast a little bit differently. Uh, I'm working on it, actually, with uh, uh, Steve Lunsford, Steve Raddick, Emma Atunas, uh, Lena Trudeau from NAPA, and uh, a bunch of other folks, uh, Mark uh, Drapo, uh, Louis Shepard. So, and I'm, I'm probably leaving people out. I guess Maxine Teller is another one of our players, Justin Franks is another person who's participating. So we're, we're trying to get a lot of folks together from all sorts of areas of the government, defense sector, or civilian sector. Uh, we're trying to pull all those minds together to tell us who is it that you've encountered who might fit into this descriptive category of uh, maybe not supportive at all or maybe kind of neutral, and how do we get them into the room and get them comfortable talking about what are their issues, what are some of their problems. Um, what is Gov2o to them, do they care enough about it to, to even come to the conference? These are things that we are very curious. We want to know if, um, if we have something going on here. Given the response, uh, for just from folks that are in the know, I think we're on to something. I just don't quite know what the something is yet, but we're still forming it up, and we'll see what's going on uh, next month or so. We're shooting for February to, to actually hold that conference.
1: Right. Are the, you uh,
3: seeing,
1: I, I'm sorry, Stephen, I just got a question and um jumped in. Are you seeing folks you know, from that targeted constituency responding? I mean I'm sure you've got consultants who are going, yeah, I've got all these people who don't see the value and I want them to. Are you seeing yeah. people going,
3: Yeah, I don't I don't you know,
1: I'll come to that conference because I don't get this stuff and why we're doing it?
3: Yeah, I got um three emails just to me uh from folks that um know uh, i, I won 't say the agencies, but yeah, uh, one was a local government fo- person who was who just wrote me a really long email that said, Yeah, this is exactly what we need to do because i 'm having these issues too, and i 've got people I can bring. and I was like that 's great, and that was like I had that first email that had a long drought of, of nobody, and I was thinking oh, geez, we 're not we're not going to even anybody. Then I got some folks uh, from the federal side uh, emailing me, including an attorney who said, here are some of the issues, zap, 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 a very nice, concise email uh, talking about how um, when the government goes out and is transparent, um, the, and this gets to that issue of what does the government disclose and not disclose, as soon as the government goes live with a piece of data, they have to support it. So when we talk about um, someone from the government using Facebook, for, for example, and they say, "Oh, the position—not necessarily the position of our agency—is X." But they say, "Yeah, I think that you know this this issue is all washed up, and you know the government shouldn't have a role in it." That may be them personally speaking, but now they, that can also be interpreted in a different way. So, how do you educate your workforce in such a way that they know um, when they're speaking for themselves, speaking for their agency, speaking for their clients? You know, who, who are these? Who are these people? Why are they saying these things? Um, all of those are issues that like this attorney cares about, so she felt that um, uh, the conversation inside of her agency and at these conferences was not getting down to that level and that they needed to. so that gave me a little a little heartening. And then I got a, a third email that was also along those lines that the that they had a of, they were themselves a person that was skeptical of the value of some of these technologies. Um, not just for opening up all data to the, to the world, but also about well, how, is it that this, how is it that a microblogging feature is helpful for my agency to get its business done? Tell me how that, that applies. And the answer may very well be it doesn't, but there's a parade of people that will say, oh, it does, it does, and try to make the case for it. Well, they would rather have a real honest dialogue with some of their peers and folks that are inclined to say, well, maybe it's not the right answer for you, and um, that's the kind of dialogue we want to have.
0: That's great.
1: Well, Steve. I want to thank you, you guys. Um, Stephen, you wanted to jump. Oh, back could now. I just want just one yeah. quick
0: thing? The uh, Bill Eggers, who also works at Deloitte, um, was talking about design and implementation of big programs. And this is going to be a big program. It cuts across all federal agencies. They're all going to be doing it in in one way, shape, or another. And my experience in working with civilian and also defense agencies, but defense seems to have a better implementation program. You know, it doesn't always work. But in general, they're more clear about what their expectations are as it goes down through the chain of command. And now this open government directive is going to be coming down through the chain of command, mm-hmm. and if the quality of the uh directive is poor, and it's not clear what they mean by transparency and how people are going to be measured and what you know how high they want people to jump and how long and for you know so forth if it's not clear and it's just fuzzy, then I'm afraid that all the agencies will basically say, "Okay, well, I guess we'll decide." Each of us, what transparency, what collabor what what the measures of success are, and that's what I'm afraid of is that it just comes out and says, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, and everybody go out and be, you know, open,
2: yeah. and
0: you, so um, anyway, that's 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 my concern. So it really does depend on how clear the transparency directive is, and and I think that that. Uh...
1: That's a valid concern. and Some of the activism that I'm involved in is, you know, asking citizens to set expectations of, of the government uh, for some of these new technologies. I mean, and, and I think that's almost where Lessig was going, too, is that if there isn't a citizen expectation for something, why are we doing it? Uh, you know, I, I, I felt some of that in there. Well, thank you very much, Stephen and Brian, for joining us, and thank you, Steve uh, Lunsford. Uh, next week we're going to be talking with Ari Herzog uh, government and social media uh, consultant and also uh, up for election on Tuesday uh, for a local city council race and uh, hoping to talk to him as a new Gov2o council member we'll see about that Uh, and then uh, in the middle of the month on uh, the 15th we're going to have Bill Eggers and his co-author John O'Leary on to talk about uh, doing big things in government so that uh, should be uh, an exciting show as well. So thank you so much, guys, and uh, thank you to our listeners. And uh, we'll see you again Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern.
2: Thank you. Thank you.